All right, how are we all doing? Doing all right? Good. Welcome to Village Church. For those of you who are new, uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, welcome to Surrey South, Langley South, Langley North, and Calgary. Uh, man, it was great visiting uh, out in Calgary uh, and just seeing that church take off, people serving Jesus. It is awesome. So really excited. Glad you're here. Uh, we have wrapped up the Problem of God series, and we are back in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to the Gospel of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. If you're new to church, um, Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament presenting Jesus, like a biography of Jesus. And uh, we as a church have been going through it for a couple years because if, if you've kind of just been here since the Problem of God series, uh, you, you notice that it's kind of topical for those, uh, for those weeks, for those eight weeks. But now uh, we do something called expository preaching. It's basically just verse by verse through the Bible, through Bible books, because we believe that's what God would want a church to do, which means you have to hit tough passages. You don't just get to choose the passages you deal with and wrestle with. And today is one of those days. In fact, the scholar uh, that I was reading about the passage we're going to look at today said this, this parable, out of all the parables, uh, makes any scholar that looks at it makes their knees weak. And it's probably one of the more difficult parables. So awesome. Come out of the problem of God, jump right back into the worst parable ever. So uh, uh, so let me read it for you. And it, what it is, is it's uh, kind of the third of a trilogy of parables. It's kind of like the return of the Jedi, all right? It's the third, it's the final chapter uh, in the saga. That was a Star Wars reference for those of you who are like, what does that mean? That's magic. Um, and... Uh, and so it's kind of a third in a trilogy of parables where Jesus is kind of making the same point uh, that he's making over and over again. He makes it again with a third parable uh, that's very interesting. And so let me read it to you. Uh, and what we're going to notice is... Uh, the, you know, it's, not, it's probably not what it, what it seems uh, on the surface. And so we'll, we'll look at uh, some of the more difficult parts of it. But here we go. So here's the story. I'll just read the whole story for you, and then we'll unpack uh, some thoughts. So Matthew 22, uh, verse 1 says this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So remember, parables, are, they're, not, they're not just kind of stories, but they're stories where Jesus is trying to reshuffle the furniture in all of our brains, our worldview. So if you come here as a Buddhist, if you come here as a Muslim, if you come here as an atheist or, or a Jew or a Hindu, whatever, Jesus is kind of talking to all of us. Maybe we're just normal Canadian agnostics, atheists. And so Jesus wants to challenge us and tell stories that kind of reshuffle the furniture in our brains. That say, you used to think about money and God. God and sex and family in these ways. Let me tell you stories rather than just giving you prose. Let me just tell you stories that are going to crack you open and make you question everything you think you know. Let me cause you to doubt your doubts and be skepticism of your own skepticism and tell you stories that break open the way that you think about how a person might connect to God. Because he tells these stories to basically say everything you thought was true isn't. It's actually all upside down. And in this story, he's going to say, all the people that you thought were in are actually out. And all the people that you thought were out are actually in. But how does that even happen? And so that's what a parable is. And he says, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not about going to heaven when you die. The kingdom is, is literally, it's, uh, it's the, the basileu yuaeon. It's, it's, he's, he's framing this kind of this, this reign of God, the rule of God in the world and in a person's life. And so when he says it, he's not saying, let me tell you how you're going to go to heaven when you die. He's saying, let me tell you about what it looks like to live under the reign of God. 
God, the rule of God, how to take your money and put it under who God is, how to take your family life, your work life, and put it under the God of the universe or not. This is what it looks like to be those people. You're either a person who comes into the kingdom of heaven, not when you die in the future, but in the present. So the question of the parable is, how do you know in the present who's part of the covenant people of God? Who's in the kingdom? And so he says, let me tell you this story. The kingdom of heaven, the reign, the rule of God, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So the reality is all these people would have already RSVP'd. They already would have said, that, my goodness, there's going to be this great party. We're in, we'll be there. And then months later, the king decides, okay, now it's the time. And he says, go and get all the people who said they were going to come to come. And they say... They would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, this is why scholars' knees get weak a little bit. Because obviously in this story, the king is God. And he's sending his emissaries out, his servants, to tell people about God and how he wants to get in relationship with them. They reject him. And so he comes against them with troops and destroys their city, burns them down. Which had this historical reference point for Jesus because it's, he's looking at Israel at the time and he's saying, I'm coming at you with a break in the road. I'm coming at you with a new way of being the people of God. The old ways have been great, but they're now retired. When I was in Israel, um, you would pay attention to Sabbath so much so that you would get in an elevator, and if it was Friday night to Saturday night, which is Shabbat, Sabbath, you, it just stops at every floor so that you don't have to do the work of pressing the button in the elevator. Because if you work, that's bad. And so Jesus is saying that kind of religious rigor, that kind of works in order to gain favor with God is coming to a close and there's a part in the road. And now, Israel, I want you to accept me as the way to become part of the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't, then God is going to be against you because you're taking your religion and the temple and all these great things and you're turning them to reject the Son of God. You're rejecting your own story. And if you do that, if you reject the Son, here's what's going to happen. God's going to send an army. And what happened is, is about 40 years after Jesus' death, he sent, you know, the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed the whole religious life of Israel and burned it to the ground never to be rebuilt. And so the reality is he's saying, if you reject the sun, if you reject the climax to your own story, there's just going to be this historical moment of judgment that's a message to the world that you need to embrace Jesus now. And so in our hearts, we've been to go, okay, if I have religious ways of doing things, doing my devos every day, giving my uh, time to the church, and I think that that earns favor with God, you don't understand. You receive Jesus and what he's done for you, and if you don't, he's against you. That's what we're going to realize. And so it says, verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Right? That's the point. You think all these people are out because they're bad. 
You think they're out because I know what they think politically. I know what they think this. I know that they live a bad life. And Jesus goes, here's what the kingdom looks like. Go invite the good and the bad. I want everybody in this party. All the people who are not worthy. I got rejected by these guys. Now let's let anybody into this party. We're going to see why he does that. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11. But when the king came, so that's a nice story. That's like, cool. God invites everybody into the kingdom. We like grace. This is legit. And I wish it stopped there. But it doesn't. But when the king came in, this is God, to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, you know this is going somewhere bad. Friend, I'm just wondering, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? I love this line. This is very important, by the way. And he was speechless. How did you get in here? You don't have a, you're not wearing a tuxedo. You're not wearing a suit. You're not wearing what everybody else in this party is wearing. How did you get in here? And the guy, he could have come up with answers. I can't afford one. Dude, you just invited me. Like I was at the well. You walked in and said, want to come to my party? So I came. What did you expect me to do? But he doesn't give any excuse. This is important. He's speechless. So what does he do with him? Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yee. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is why people don't want to read this parable. This is why it's one of the tough ones. Because we in the modern Western Canadian world don't like versions of God where he gets jacked up about stuff. Where God, see, God doesn't have any enemies. He's a nice guy. He's a daft old uncle sitting around in the garden and just wants you to pay attention to him. And if you give him a little bit of attention, once in a while you throw a prayer up, he's just like, I'm so happy that Chris got in touch with me. It just warms my heart that he's on my team. That's how we project God. But then you read parables like this, it starts going, whoa, 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 where are you, where are you getting this stuff? He is, when we reject him, here's what we got to understand. When we reject him, we're not doing it as innocent children, just fumbling around our way through life. We're doing it as adults who in our brains go, we don't want anything to do with God. And in that moment, what we're saying is, we don't want you to have rulership over us. We don't want to live life the way that you want us to live life. We're against you. And this is why he actually, it's an act of war. When you and I say to God, we don't want to live life in the kingdom. We don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to repent of sin. We don't want to give our life to you. What he's saying is, that's not just an innocent act somewhere. That's an act of war of the heart, of the mind, of you saying, I want to live my own life. I want to be my own what? I want to be my own God. It's the sin of the garden. It's, hey, I want to be God. I want to know the difference between right and wrong. I want to actually, and so here's what we got to understand. This story is telling us something that it's not as it seems, all right? Something appears to be this on the surface, but it's actually not as it seems, which happens in life all the time. I, um, I remember... When we first moved to Vancouver, we lived in the basement apartment of this sweet couple. They had four kids. So Aaron and I lived in like this 600, 700 square foot house and um, in the basement. I was going to college. And uh, 
And the husband and wife lived upstairs, four kids, a little baby, uh, three other ones just running around. You know, if those of you who have lived in basement apartments, boo, 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 all the time, right? But we didn't care. We were newlyweds. We're out in Vancouver. We're doing the thing. Everyone's, you know, smoking weed. We're chill. So uh, we love the Vancouver life. We start to eat vegan and kale and do all that fun stuff. So we're living our life, and, uh, and one day she comes downstairs, and her husband's at work. Aaron's at work, and I'm at home writing a paper. And uh, she's like, hey, I got to go have a shower. Can you just come up and, like, watch the baby? And I'm in ministry at this point. Like, I'm working at a church. I'm a young adult pastor or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I go up. I'm sitting upstairs in her house now. Not in, like, my house down there. And I'm in her house. And I'm, you know, playing with the baby. And, you know, she goes up in the shower. And, she, and I'm, like, playing with the baby. And then the doorbell rings. Like, ding dong. So I'm like, well, what do I do now? So... I go down, I'm holding the baby, right, and, hey, and I open up the door, and it's one of the young adults, uh, and they've knocked on her door instead of mine, and I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And they kind of look at me like, what are you holding the baby for? I'm like, hey, what are you doing? They're like, well, I'm just here, you know, pastor, because blah, 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 and uh, she comes down the stairs in a towel, with her towel, you know, her hair all up in the towel and just like this robe on. And she comes down right beside me. She's like, what's going on here, Mark? I'm like, uh. And the guy's like, looks at her. He's like, I'm going to come back. I'm like, no, don't come back, please. <laughs> all right? This does not look good at all. I'm, I'm playing house with the lady upstairs. Um, so things aren't always as they seem. And that's really what this story does as it goes I'm presenting to you something that looks on the surface like God's a mean guy, like God is, you know, somehow cruel, because that's your, you're coming from a Western framework of what you think God is. But be very careful with what you think God is, because the reality is when you and I choose to say, I don't want to live under you anymore, then the natural implication is outer darkness. When we say to God, we don't want your light. Remember when we talked about the, in the problem of hell week? When, when a human soul says to themselves, I don't want you in this life, then what you've got to understand is the implication of that is God is the one who gives us all the common graces. He's the one who gives us light. So of course we end up in outer darkness. He's the one who gives us water. So of course we end up thirsty. He's the one who gives us sex and music and art and beauty. And so when we say to ourselves, we don't want you in this life, then the eternal implication of that is we're going to live without those things. That's why he's saying he's fighting. He's doing, here, here's the beautiful thing about this. Look at this story. What it looks like on the surface, is, if you hone in on just verse 7, is God's so mean. I can't believe he's that mean. But the reality is, look at verse 1 to 5. It's, it's showing us a story where God is so gracious, he goes and gives everyone a shot. He is so great. He's not this mean God up in heaven just saying, oh, I can't wait for someone to do something wrong. Bam, I'm going to zap them. He says, here's what mercy looks like. There was a Gallup poll uh, a few years ago done in America where they said, what are you most anxious about after you die? And 43% of people responded and they said, I'm nervous that God won't forgive me. That's what the question of this story is. I am nervous that I'm not going to be given mercy. And the first image that we get about God in verse 1 to 5 is God is a God of mercy who goes out and gives everybody a shot. He calls everybody. He says, come to the party. And these people would have already agreed, I'm coming. I'm coming to the party. I'm there. And then he says, okay, time is on. And then they reject it. They're too busy. 
They're going to work. They're at home. They've got, here's the scary thing about this story where it comes in at you and me because the story is told for, against religious people, which is why, you know, all these parables, uh, if you look down at verse 21, at the end of chapter 21, uh, when he told a parable very similar to this one, it says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And then at the end of this parable in 22, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. It's the religious people that know that Jesus is preaching against them. Because he's saying to them, listen, you said you were going to come to the party. And when the time came for you to come and, and actually relate to the king, come into his presence, you rejected it because you were too busy. Here's the warning for you and me. You, you're a Christian maybe. You're a religious person. You said when you got baptized, when you got in the ocean, maybe here at Village, and you went in the ocean and you said, hey, Everybody, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's you saying, I'm going to come to the party. But have you come? When you do communion like we did last week, that's you sitting there saying, I'm going to come to the party. I'm going to be a person that follows the God of the universe with my life. Then the question of this story is, okay, have you come to the party? Have you shown up? You said you were going to show up when you became a member of Village Church, you said, I'm going to show up to the party. That's my God, and I'll do anything in regard to sacrifice. Have you shown up? Because here's the crazy part of the story. There are people who say, I'm going to show up to the party, who don't end up at the party because they're too busy and they're too selfless, selfish, not selfless enough. They're not focused on Jesus enough. They said they were going to do something. They said that prayer at summer camp. They came forward at the altar. They made a promise when no one was listening. And then the invitation goes out. Let's make good on what you said. And then there's this category of person who just doesn't follow through. That's what's scary. You and I can say a thousand times, we're going to be there, we're going to be there, we're going to be there. But if we don't show up, the key is, man, are you actually following this? I had a buddy, my, uh, my stepdad passed away. Uh, it was the second week of Village Church, actually. So those of you who know, I lost my uh, biological father when I was 15, and my stepdad came into my life when I was about 9 or 10. He was an amazing guy, raised me, raised my brother really well, taught us about, you know, life and loving, how to love a woman and how to work hard and all the, you know, things that my, my biological dad never taught us. And um, he passed away uh, in 2010. It was the second, we planted Village Church uh, in January, in the second week of Village Church, I got a phone call just before I preached and said, hey, Al just passed away. And uh, I remember going to his funeral, and I was doing his funeral, and I called my best friend, and I said, hey, listen, this is going to be rough. I, I need you to be there. And he said, of course I'll be there. What are you talking about? Of course I'll be there. And I said, okay. So he said, yeah. so I said, I'm going to look out. You know, I know I'm going to be breaking, and when I look out, I need to be able to see you there. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll be there. So I'm sitting there doing my, you know, dad's funeral, and I'm just bawling, right? I can't even, I'm just like, <laughs> God, <laughs> Bible, right? I'm just <laughs> done. Can't even talk. And I'm looking out, and he ain't there. And I'm like, well, I know sometimes he's late for stuff, you know? And he just never showed up. And I called him after. I'm like, dude, what happened? He's like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I forgot about it. I got into this other thing, and da-da-da-da. And I'm just like, I hate you for the rest of my life. Don't talk to me, right? 
because, because the reality is you can say you're going to be somewhere. The issue is actually showing up. The issue is when the invitation goes out, when the rubber hits the road, you go, do I actually follow Jesus with my life at all, with my family life, with my work life, whatever it is? The reality is, so here's the thing. The invitation goes out. Are you going to commune with God? Are you going to be excited to meet with him? Are you going to actually follow God in your life at all? Is that, an, is that something that actually gets you jacked? Is that something that gets you pumped? Is that something that gets you excited? Actually being with the God of the universe? Or is this just religion and checking boxes off? There's two kind of Friday night dates that I have. There's the kind of Friday night date where my wife says, we're, hey, we're doing, you know, you know this too, where it's like family night or you're doing some friends that you're going to meet with. And there's a group where it's like you actually get excited about it and you're like, I can't wait tonight. And you're at work and you're like, boom, this is legit. And then there's the people where it feels like a chore and you're sitting there at work all day Friday. You're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be brutal tonight. Can work please go longer? We got to hang out with them again. Oh my all right, and it's a chore. Those are two different styles of Fridays, all right? The reality is, when God says, are you going to come to the party? Here's the question. When you think about God, when you think about Jesus, when you think about your relationship with the God of the universe, the question in your brain has to be, which one of those two kind of Friday night dates are you actually excited to be with him in the now? Is it an invitation you want to go, I want to actually be with the God of the universe? Or are you just kind of believing in him to get his stuff? And at the end of the day, are you actually excited? And so he gives this parable and he says, hey, listen, I don't know what's best for you. I know you don't think I know what's best for you, but I know what's best for you. And the beautiful thing is, look at verse uh, 3. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. That's the question of your life right now. He's calling you, and this is the great thing, right, is because God himself is the one that calls. He's the first mover. Don't forget that. And sometimes you and I perceive our salvation in a particular way, and we're like, we ask questions like, hey, you know, um, you know, I chose God, or did God choose me, and all that kind of stuff. And we, and we say, what if people are out there who never hear? What, if, what about those people in those countries that never hear and they, you know, they, what about, here's the beautiful thing. God sends people out and he calls and there's a group of people who respond and there's a group of people who don't respond. But the story never says he didn't call people. Everybody gets a call at some level, at some measure. Even those people in the villages, God is going to judge them based on the measure of exposure that they got to the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about God's call. And so when we begin to think about our salvation, God gets the glory for it because even if we say, yeah, but it was at summer camp when I did this or it was with my parents when I was five years old, this story is saying, yeah, but recognize that was a response to something that God did. See, this story is saying things are not as they seem. God is so good that he actually gives us a call. That he looks to us and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an opportunity to cut through all the nonsense of your life and actually commune with me. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to do a call out to you to invite you to actually believe. And so you're sitting here maybe as a skeptic and you're going, yeah, but, and you come up with all these hypothetical scenarios. Here's the dangerous part. Here's the scary part about this story. You and I think that we've got all the time in the world. We think, oh, don't worry about it. You know, one day I'll just consider Christianity for another year and then I'll figure out whether I like it or not. Here's the reality. 
if in the last few months, even as we've gone through this series or whatever, you felt any kind of tug on your life, on your soul, on your heart, on your mind to go, okay, I need to believe in this. This doesn't get to be your own timeline. Because there may come a time, listen to me, think about what this story is saying. There may come a time where the invitation stops for you. You don't get to do this. If I make you a meal, like, okay, this week with my kids, I made them dinner. And then I yelled up to them and I said, hey, guys, come on, time for dinner. What did they get to say? Hey, I'll come down when I'm ready. All right? They know that ain't going to happen. I'll come, hey, dad, thanks for making that great dinner. I'll be down in a week. I'll consider what you're offering me for a month or so. The pros, the cons, then I might show up. And when they show up, food's done. It's garbage. It's rotted. I'm not inviting them down a week from now. I'm inviting them down now. And if you feel any kind of, man, I've started questioning my questions. I've started doubting my doubts. I've started to think maybe Jesus really is the person in the marketplace of ideas and worldviews and people and history, don't assume to yourself that you're going to have next week or next month that you're going to actually care about this stuff. The thing is, is you got to go, the meal is being offered to me right now. And so you've got to start to think about your life and go, man, is this something I actually should give myself to in the now? Because I don't have all the time in the world. The beautiful thing about this is the way that God, so God's got this call, but then he's got people who go out and invite, right? He says in verse 4, he sent other servants. He sent other servants. How do people hear about the love and the grace of God and what God has done in Jesus? By sending servants. That's me and you. You know my story. I would have never been a believer if Chris Watt hadn't put his own pride aside and walked up to me in woodworking class and said, I think you need to know Jesus. He had to put his own pride aside, though. See, here's my fear, to be honest with you, because I, the more and more I get to know our church, I'm super encouraged. There's a lot of people who have a lot of non-Christian friends and actually reach out to them. But then I get discouraged because my feeling is there's a large percentage of our church you don't have any non-Christian friends. You don't know any unchurched people. And you're not telling anybody about Jesus. This whole story is built around a group of people who go out and tell some people. There's an invitation. There's a feast. There's a celebration. Don't you want it? There's a truly human life in the now that I want to tell you about. And your heart should pump for that. Like you should constantly be saying to yourself, man, think about my friend group. Think about the time in my calendar. What does my week look like? Am I actually going out and telling anybody about this at all? Because I'm not here today unless a guy walks up to me at 17, even though he's in high school, and it might be the most uncool thing to do to look at another student and go, hey, listen, I think you, get to, I think you should get to know Jesus. It would have been way easier for him to pass on that and just assume someone else will tell me. Or maybe I'll figure it out by how such a good guy he is. I'll deduce that I'm supposed to repent of sin and give my life to the second person of the Trinity who died on the cross and took the wrath of God on himself because of the way he's nice to people. That's what we do. We don't want to articulate the invitation because if I just cut the guy's lawn and give him uh, cookies, I'm sure he'll figure out what God did for him in Jesus. But the reality is, is you need to go invite. You understand that that's part of the call of the story. Um, 
Here's the need of this. I'm going to give you a pretty dark picture. But it taught me a lot about my wife and her heart. And um, when we were in Calgary, something really weird happened. Um, we went into a bath. I went. She went into a bathroom. I went into it after, but she went into it not realizing that this um, restaurant had made a decision, stupid one, um, to connect the men's and women's bathrooms. So it was like a mirror and a mirror and a mirror, and then an open wall where from the men's bathroom you can look into the women's bathroom, and from the women's bathroom you can look into the men's bathroom. And, but they don't tell you this. So I understand some restaurants do this, but there's no sign. You go in through separate doors. So it's like you go into a man's door, you go into a woman's door, and then they have this open wall. So you literally just look into the bathrooms. So I just watch a woman just walk in, go in a stall, wash her hands. They look into the urinals, all right, all that. And then this restaurant had a bunch of pictures all over the wall that were porn. It was, it was porn. I mean, it was crazy because it wasn't a nightclub. It was a normal family restaurant. Naked women everywhere, all over the picture, all over the walls. And my wife went in, totally innocent, not understanding that there was this concept of looking in or whatever. She went to the bathroom, came out, she washed her hands, and she hears a man clear his throat and looks up, and there's a man looking at her masturbating, looking into her eyes. This is in Calgary, Saturday night, staring at her. And of course, she just like, freezes, totally sickened. We go out, we talk to management. They start making up crazy excuses about, well, don't worry, you know. So we point out the guy, and they say, well, what are we going to do? He's European. I'm like, good point. <laughs> and so uh, we left, obviously. And uh, so Saturday night, this is when I was about to preach in Calgary. And... Uh, Saturday night, you know, obviously she's upset. I am, like I'm telling you, it's a, it's, it's, it, I was this close to you guys having to bail me out of jail and maybe be disqualified for ministry. Like she pointed the guy out and he was huge. I mean, he would have destroyed me, but I just would have, you would have had to bail me out. It would have been like a hospital prison type scenario. <laughs> like I would have been like, man, he's half dead and in jail. Um, so Aaron falls asleep and I'm sitting up and I, you know, was supposed to work on my stuff for Calgary and, and now I can't. And literally guys, I was up till, you know, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, just staring at the ceiling, wanting to burn something down. I mean, I was just, I couldn't focus. I couldn't do anything. And, um, I was texting with a couple friends and they said, you know, the reality is the enemy doesn't want you there. He doesn't want your wife there. He doesn't want you planting a church in Calgary. He doesn't want people to hear about Jesus. He doesn't want you getting up and proclaiming sin. And my wife woke up and I said, you know, how are you doing? And she said, you know what? The reality is God spoke to me last night and he said, as messed up as this is, as dark and ridiculous as this is, this is the reason we plant churches. This is the reason we started this church to begin with, Mark, is because People are lost. People are in sin. The world is a dark place. And what do you do in a room that's full of darkness? You turn a light on. You tell, you proclaim. 
You tell people, man, this is how lost you are. You don't even know it. You don't don't even have any self-awareness. But the king is offering you a gift of life and truth and identity and celebration where you don't have to find yourself trying to get joy and pleasure through all these messed up ways because it can be found in Jesus. And she's like, this is why we're here. This is why we ever did this to begin with. See, that's an evangelist heart. That's the heart of people who go out of their way and say, I want to invite the world to know about him. This is why we exist as a church. I was sitting in, uh, in Vancouver a couple weeks ago getting my hair cut. My buddy took me down to his haircut. He's like, this guy's great. So we went down and I sit in the chair and it was one of those moments like all I wanted to do was just be on my phone and do emails of the guy cuts my hair. I don't need to be yapping and making small talk. It's like just, I got so much on my mind. I got so much to do. Let me just read my emails, cut my hair and I'll pay you and let's let that be the contract. And so I uh, sit down in the chair and like got my phone out blah, 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 and immediately he's like, so what do you do? I'm like, ah, well, forget that. Boom, done. That's done. All right? Because I know where that always leads, right? Especially when I'm in Vancouver, all right? Like the vegan part of Vancouver, right? So I'm like, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? And then it's boom. He just starts hammering. The church, Christianity, God, you know, blah, blah, all this stuff. And so uh, instead of just laughing and going, yeah, you know, I know, crazy Christians, I started kind of defending Christianity and going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, you know, how do you know what the church has done in the past? Well, you know, the Crusades. And I'm like, hmm, let's talk about that. I happened to write a book about it. <laughs> and I started, like, like started talking and defending faith. And, and by the time, you know, every assumption that he kind of threw out, I kind of stopped him. I said, well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Eh? You know, what do you mean there's so much evil and suffering in the world? And I said, where did you even get the category of evil? And of course, then he starts getting riled up. And I'm like, oh no, my haircut's going to be a disaster. He's going to... Because he's jacked. Like, he's like trying to defend it now. And he's like trying to argue why Christianity's bad. And, you know, and there was this moment where it was like at the end of the conversation, it was like, you know, yeah, good point. I'll read that. I'll, you know, yeah, I should read your book. And I, yeah, I was thinking, but yeah, good point, you know. And it kind of left like he didn't get to win the argument at that point. And, uh, and I felt like I was just trying to point him to Jesus, point him to God, just going, hey, look, I know Christians are a disaster. I know the history of the church is a disaster. But you can't base Christianity on that. You've got to base it on Jesus and who he is. And, and this is what it looks like to actually know him. See, in that moment, in that haircut, in that half an hour, I had a decision to make. Just borrow into myself or do the invitation. Invite someone to a feast that he doesn't even know how good it is yet. And some of you, you don't know how good God is yet. You don't know what it's like to see and taste that the Lord is good. All of you got is like, I know him cognitively. I know him theoretically. I have some ideas, some theology, some doctrines, some philosophy. But that doesn't mean you know him. That means you got invited and you said, sure, I'll show up. But it doesn't mean you've tasted and seen him. It doesn't mean you walk with him now. And so this story isn't about pagans necessarily just repenting of sin and being invited to the party. Yeah, that's part of it. People who don't know God, people who are here who are wondering and spiritually interested. Yes, it's about that. But it's about religious people who thought they knew him, who thought they said they were going to come to the party. That's why the Pharisees get mad. It's the church people who are here who think they know him, and the scandal of the story is you may not at all know him. You might have raised your hand and said you're going to go to a feast, but when he looks at you, see, here's the thing. Who's this guy 
sitting there at the wedding, and he's in the wrong garments. This is a guy, listen, everyone shows up to the wedding. Everyone from the street shows up to the wedding, and they, they didn't have time to go home. So where did they get these garments? They got them from the king. The king provided clothing to every single person who walked in, but then he finds this guy. See, this is where the gospel is different. We talk about the fact that, you know, the love of God is unconditional. Listen, the love of God isn't unconditional. The love of God cost him everything. God had to sacrifice his own son. God had to give you clothes at his own expense to come to the party. You don't just get to come in for free. Yeah, it's free for you. It costs the king everything to throw that party. It costs the king his own son to garment you, to give you clothing so you can show up to the party in the first place. And here's someone at the party who wanted to be there on what? Their own terms. Here, take a garment. Oh, like everybody else? Forget that. I'm unique, like a snowflake. Because my kindergarten teacher told me, I'm so unique, I'm so special, I'm such an interesting person. It's just about me and my life and my autonomy and my worldview and my money and my body and I can do whatever I want with it. And now you're standing at a party wanting to not be like everybody else and rejecting the way that God asked you to come into the kingdom so you don't get in. You have to come and rely on my sacrifice as much as that might be humbling for you. Put your ego aside. Put your pride aside. It costs me everything. And if you don't want to try to come into the kingdom through the way I say it has to be done, you don't get into the kingdom. And then there's darkness. That's the scandal of the gospel. But don't think it didn't cost them anything. Let me pray for both those groups of people. Father, there's those of us who are very religious, who think we're in, and this story says all the people who thought they were in, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, Israel, the religious people, when Jesus comes and the issue becomes about what he's done and the cost of what you did, they're out now. And all these people who looked really bad and look like they didn't have their stuff together, they're in because they had the humility to depend on the garments that you provided, the party that you threw, the cost that you actually paid to get them in rather than their own works and their own money and their own lives. Let that scandal hit those of us who are church-going people who think everything's good, and then let that scandal hit those of us who are just exploring and we've never trusted you at all. And maybe a story like this just pierces the heart of both those groups and calls us to repent, to actually turn from our ways and trust in what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you for giving us these scandalous stories. Thank you for being a God who doesn't just sit in heaven, detached from reality, hoping we can figure stuff out but you came down in the person of Jesus and invite us now. I pray that we do your work faithfully, that we respond faithfully. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.
Amen. Okay, before you guys leave, uh, I got a quick update for you for Village 2021. Really important stuff. Awesome stuff. Encouragement, but also an update and, and exhortation. So Village 2021 is our project. For those of you who are new, we're raising $10 million in order to get land. The land is about five minutes from here. And ultimately what we want to do is be in our own building by 2021, which obviously in a culture like ours costs money. So we've squared away the land, but we need to be able to raise $10 million to actually close the land and get it by February 28th. So we started a campaign um, a couple months ago to raise $10 million. We asked you guys to pledge. You guys pledged and have pledged so far 6.2 million of the 10 million, which is awesome. Praise God. Thank you for that. Super generous. That's amazing. Um, but we still have $4 million to get pledged. Now, two things. First, a pledge actually isn't money. And so my hope is if you actually pledged it, you can start giving it now. Make sure you 100% give it by February 28th because we need all of you. Don't pledge it unless you can give it. But please, those of you who did pledge it, make sure you actually do give it and you didn't just like feel pressure at a moment ago because we, there's a lot of planning that goes around these pledges. So we pledged 6.2 million. Awesome. We've had people... Amazing stories. Uh, youth that set aside 20% of the money that they raised, making a minimum wage at a job for their college fund, and they gave it to this. People who said, hey, we were going to do this, and then we worked some stuff out, and we realized we don't need RSP stuff, so we gave those stocks. People who sold condos and gave the money, uh, a couple $1 million gifts out of that $6.2, uh, uh, a $500,000 gift, uh, multiple $250,000 gifts. People are giving. People are being generous because their hearts have been stirred by the gospel to be generous. Now here's the thing. Only 42% of people that we estimated we're gonna, are going to give to this um, have actually pledged yet. Now I know December, kind of year end, some of you guys are figuring out, okay, I needed to wait to this and then figure that out. Awesome. I get that. But we need the rest of you to actually pledge. We need that 42, because what we want, even more important than the money, is the participation. Because here's the principle of the Bible. You read 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, hey, if you benefit from a pastor teaching you, make sure that pastor gets money, right? That's the whole idea of 2 Corinthians 8. You don't freeload in the context of the kingdom. And so if I was to ask you right now, when we build this awesome building that's going to be awesome for youth group and women's stuff and church planning and Sundays and uh, cafe and all this kind of stuff, when we build that, how many of you are going to go? How many of you are actually going to show up? And if I got you to raise your hands, if you weren't liars to the core of your being, all of you would raise your hands and go, yeah, I ain't going to keep showing up here. When no one's here, I'm going to show up at the new place where we're doing church. We're going to reach people in the next two decades. All right. Well, you can't do that and not pay for it. That's not the way this works. You can't let other people pay for your benefit. So the issue is God doesn't care so much about the amount. It's the sacrifice. If you, we want everybody giving to this. We want that 42% uh, per, uh, participation to actually raise up to higher than that. And so we need uh, a lot of you to actually pledge. So about 700 units have pledged uh, and told us how much they're going to give. That's awesome. We factored in about 1,700. So we need 1,000 of you to think, pray, make sure that you know, and actually tell us. Go online, Village 2021. Uh, get a card, talk to the Connect Desk, whatever you do. But we need to know in the next couple of weeks, we need you guys to actually say, here's how much I'm going to give to this. Uh, because really it's all about, listen, 
This is about God giving all of us an opportunity to participate in this. And you go through any gospel. Jesus talks about money all the time. And he says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And if your heart is in mission, if your heart is actually reaching people for Jesus, then your money has to follow. You read Luke 16, Jesus is all about the reality of, hey, where your money goes, that, there's going to be treasure that you don't really understand spiritual life and reward in heaven if you don't follow discipleship and follow Jesus with your money. If you just follow him with the songs that you sing and the time that you give to things and you don't say, actually, I need to prioritize my money around things of the kingdom, then you don't understand what Jesus is calling you to in life. It has to follow. And so the call for us is to 100% of us need to participate in this at whatever level. If all you can afford is $2,000, awesome. We'll take $1,500. That student, he like worked out his life. He's like, I'm going to sacrifice 20% of my college fund. He's given $1,500. And then he saw the 6.2 and he was like, awesome, but kind of discouraged actually because where's the rest of it? I thought these people actually had jobs. And so we want to make sure that we dig deep and we ask God, what are you actually calling us to do? and that we all participate in this, all right? Love you, please do that in the next couple weeks. Thanks, have a great week, and we'll see you next week.